This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Wednesday, October 21st, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Nice White Parents, a podcast, focuses its attention on a school in a gentrifying area of New York and the white parents who are, in a sense, taking over. And in presenting the story, Robert Pondicio of the Fordham Foundation says the program misses the mark in a few crucial ways. We discussed Nice White Parents and school choice in New York earlier this month. What is... Not what are, but what is Nice White Parents? Nice White Parents is a podcast uh, that was produced by Serial Productions, which uh, a lot of folks will remember from uh, that podcast we did a few years ago about that murder case in Maryland, I believe. Uh, It's since been taken over or purchased, I guess, by the New York Times. So Nice White Parents is a five-part podcast produced by, uh, by Serial and the New York Times. And it's a, look, it's a nice piece of journalism. Let me just start by paying it a compliment. Um, we don't often get these kind of deep dives about the inner workings of schools. I'm, I'm, I'm partial to them because that's the kind of thing that I do. So um, anytime you get to spend uh, a, a great deal of time you know, doing a deep dive on what's happening inside of a, of, of a school building or a school system, you know, that, that's a good thing. Um, but as as the title implies, um, you know you can you can uh, detect a whiff of condescension about the title "Nice White Parents." Uh, it suggests uh, that the problems of public education are due to well, nice white parents imposing their will, um, uh, exerting their influence, uh, running roughshod over uh, all other uh, people, um, you know, non white parents, as it were, in a public school system. Um, to the detriment of all. That's that's the the general thesis. It, it unwinds over a five five hour long or five part hour long each series. Uh, you know, it, it's it's worth listening to, but it's it, it's uh, it's it's quite one sided. So, uh, what's missing? Wow, uh, <laughs> how much time do we have? Uh, what's what's missing? I would argue is is any other vision of education other than the one it prefers. Uh, in other words, uh, uh, Hannah Jaffe Walt, uh, who um, you know, uh, folks who are fans of This American Life will know that name and, and her work. She's been a longtime uh, producer and on-air talent there. She, she is herself, uh, I guess she says in the podcast, a, a, um, a, a mother of young children in New York City, and so started this journey looking for her uh, schools for her children. Um, but she pre- she presents a vision of public education that that is an old and honorable one. It's you know goes back to Horace Mann his his vision of common schools, um, but it it also suggests uh, or at least is incurious about any other vision other than that one. In other words, if you accept the premise that look there's one flavor of school that matters, the neighborhood public school, and one goal for those schools. Um, you know, a- achieving uh, racial harmony and being a social equalizer. Well, then you're going to be quite sympathetic to to the aims of this podcast and its conclusions. Uh, if you are in any way choice oriented or think that there should be um, you know something like pluralism in schools, uh, then you will be struck by what by what is not discussed, which is you know everything else other than that traditional uh, neighborhood common school. It's always struck me that. Uh... Well, let me let me back that up, restate it. Uh, Dick Comer, he is an attorney at the Institute for Justice uh, and a longtime uh, fighter for uh, the options of parents and the you know proclivities of parents when it comes to uh, education 
And, and something that he said a long time ago that really that has really stuck with me, and I I tell everyone uh, this this uh, statement uh, every time we talk about school choice, and that is uh, wealthy parents, even in a public school setting, always have the upper hand mm -hmm. uh, because they can walk away. And so their needs will be met. Uh, you, even if they're maybe a little unreasonable, their demands will be met. Uh, whereas lower income parents, uh, they're stuck. There are, and there are laws on the books that say, well, you got to send your kids to school. And, um, to, to use the colorful, to not use rather the colorful language of Dick Comer, uh, the school system doesn't have to do anything, uh, to appease the, the, the demands of, of those parents. And so, uh, it, it, it seems is the pitch here that it's that it's this is this is not a matter of wealth and the ability to engage in what uh, a lot of school choice people call choice by realtor. Yeah, it, it almost doesn't come up in, in a sense. Um, I mean, it's and I'll I'll, I'll uh, I won't do it do it well, but I'll try to summarize the you know the the, the general editorial arc of this podcast. It spends five episodes on basically a single school building in in the the, the cobble hill or borum hill uh, i guess section of brooklyn new york um and it's a it's uh, a, a gentrifying area so you know the the, the first episode for ex to give an example focuses on this uh, one middle school building uh that had been you know really segregated for for many many years and then as brooklyn gentrified a group of white parents decided to apply en masse uh, to this school, it, it's implied, I believe, that because you know their other options are are um, they're less likely to get into their first choice schools. So, so this one guy organizes an effort to kind of basically you know flood the zone and 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 apply in Moss, and and they want a French immersion program because that's what they had in elementary school, and they you know basically pitch the principal saying, hey, if we all come, can we do a French immersion program? And we'll raise money for it, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so that, that this and, and hence the title "Nice White Parents." There's nothing sinister about this. This is you know parents doing what parents do. So this desire on the part of the so-called nice white parents to get a French program for their kids kind of sets in motion a series of of awkward uh, encounters where you've got a long-standing PTA that is uh, po populated by black and brown parents who've been at the school for quite a long time. Um, the, 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 the new so-called nice white parents, uh, set up basically an independent fundraising, uh, um, a, a gala to raise money for this program, which, you know, in their mind, Hey, look, we, we committed to doing this when we, when we, um, you know, sent our kids here, we didn't want to burden the school. Uh, but you know, I don't need to go into great detail on this, but it sets off this kind of uncomfortable culture clash and, and sets the, the podcast in motion. And, and Hanajafi Walt at one point describes um, the proclivities of, quote, quote nice white parents. Um, I, I don't have the quote verbatim, but she describes it like, you know, somebody having an enormous backpack in a China store where, you know, everything they do just knocks things over and they don't even realize uh, that, you know, that they're doing, being disruptive or, or damaging things in, in their wake. So, that, you know, that, that sets the tone for, for the entire uh, podcast. And, and look, to her credit, um, you know, it does a really good job of unpacking the kind of the unconscious biases of, frankly, urban progressive elites who, uh, you know, may think that they are well intended and all about diversity, but uh, you know, it may be doing harm to the thing that that, that they set out to do. Um, but to your point, Caleb, I mean, choice just does not enter into this. 
uh, indeed. And what got me interested in this podcast and, and inspired me to, to write about it in the, in the October issue of Commentary was in the fourth episode, it turns out there's, there's a school in this building that she's chronicling over the course of decades, and it's a Success Academy Cobble Hill School. Now, this, this happens to be in my wheelhouse. I wrote a book about um, Success Academy and spent a lot of time with parents at this school. So it wasn't even until the fourth episode that I, that I realized, hey, wait a minute, she's talking about a school that I know quite well. But what's frustrating, frankly, and this, this kind of gets to the point about the, the lack of role that choice plays in it, um, you know, you've got this entire podcast where she is you know, uh, lamenting basically the, the untoward influence of nice white parents uh, on, on these schools. But along comes a success academy school that does all of the things that she says that, that don't happen in the public school system. You know, parents are not given uh, 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 permission to um, you know, uh, make curricular changes. Success Academy has the same model, every single one of its you know, nearly 50 schools. Uh, yeah, you can fundraise, but it's going to go to all the kids, not just your kids, on and on and on. So even when there's a school uh, that, uh, that checks all the boxes um, that she says she wants, well, it's still not enough. And that's because she has you know, problems with um, Success Academy's uh, structure and discipline, and uniforms, on and on and on. I mean, uh, I, I made you know, gentle fun of this in my review and commentary, you know, an analogize, an analogizing this to that old uh, website um, you know, called Stuff White People Like. So, you know, white people like, you know, public school and diversity. They don't like charter schools. They don't like choice. So it's not a surprise that, uh, that this, you know, uh, is, is not her preferred flavor. Changing gears here, how do you evaluate the performance of New York City in, uh, the, in the face of this uh, pandemic with respect to schooling? Wow, um, that's a really great question because it really, I think, is kind of highlighting the very, very different uh, approaches between schools of choice and and the district schools. And, and I've got a foot in one camp. I mean, um, just some brief background on my educational trajectory. I was a, a New York City Department of Education teacher for five years uh, in the early 2000s um, and, and a complete neophyte. I just kind of walked in as a do-gooder. Uh, became a little bit more militant about school choice and issues of curriculum and whatnot. More recently, I have been a charter school teacher, so I've kind of you know lived in in both worlds. I guess to answer that question, you have to start by saying uh, the obvious uh, that you know nobody was prepared for the realities of COVID, the profound disruption uh, that it has wreaked upon schools, not just in New York City but everywhere, um, and the ongoing chaos and disruption. Um, that said, you know, we've been living uh, this way for six months now, and I think it's fair to say that that the charter sector at large, certainly in New York City, uh, has done a better job of of writing the the the, 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 the ship than, than the New York City Department of Education. I mean, it's only this week we're speaking on um, it's October first. Uh, it's only this week that that in person classes have resumed in New York City, and and I've seen no authoritative accounts of this. But I, I, I see no reason to think that they're going well. I mean, there's a massive teacher shortage. Uh, there's been you know, back and forth with, with the teachers' union. Uh, I can only imagine what this looks like inside of a, uh, schools that are, are already stressed and low-performing. My best guess is, is we will see that this looks like you know, loosely organized daycare in schools like the one where I used to teach, if, if we're lucky. In other words, no coherence, no follow-through, et cetera. 
Um, I was just speaking yesterday with uh, some folks at Success Academy, and and look, you know, they they are they will candidly acknowledge uh, the challenges of of operating remotely, and they have made the decision to go full time remotely, not try to do blended learning because of the uncertainty. Uh, so they say, look, we'd we'd much rather be in school, but it is it is admirable the degree to which they have managed to recreate in a in exclusively online environment the look, the feel, the curriculum, et cetera, of, of regular schooling. Um, and I think other charters are on similar trajectories right now, you know, making the best of it in a way that I have not seen evidence that the New York City Department of Education is, is successfully doing. There has seemed to be something of a divide, and I don't know uh, whether you would agree or not, between densely populated urban areas and how rural communities have handled this pandemic with respect to schooling. And I suspect there is some relationship between the population density and the relative uh, influence of teachers' unions. Do you think that's fair? Um, I, I, how about, I suppose it's not unfair. Is, is, okay. that, is that the same thing? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, look, at, you know, um, I live in a very small town in upstate New York. Um, and I, before the pandemic, I, I spent most of my time visiting schools, you know, all, all over this country. So I, I, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but what you're suggesting um, intuitively feels right. In other words, in, in smaller communities, less densely populated communities, you tend not to have uh, you know, a large charter sector or even charter schools at all. There's, there's not the, the, the population to support a, a lot of choice. Um, and there might not be a lot of demand, uh, even if, if there was. Uh, in other words, you know, f- folks in, in, in smaller communities tend to be just fine with their schools. And look, if you're a choice advocate, then I think you need to be just fine with that. Uh, I don't have the data at arm's length, but it's kind of a bromide that, you know, like Congress, it, mo- most parents uh, think that American education, you know, they give it a D or an F, but they give their school an A or a B. I, I don't think they're wrong about that. So, I, you know, I think that schools in, in smaller communities, th- there tends to be the kind of more personal touch that you associate with with high upper, high functioning charters in, in urban areas. You know, they're it's not an anonymous, you know, civil service type of of, of setup. You know, the, the 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 staff, the administrators, the teachers, nobody by first name, etc. Um, so, so I think you know, you get more, you often get more of a community feel. I, again, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush. Um, that's really, really hard to do. Going back to New York City, um, in fairness to the New York City Department of Education, in a school system that is serving, you know, 1.1 million children, has 80,000 teachers, et et cetera. You know, at a certain level, a certain amount of kind of bureaucracy or anonymity almost becomes inevitable. In other words, the teachers are not necessarily living in the communities, they almost certainly are not living in the communities where they teach on and on. So, um, you know, a certain amount of that kind of, those kind of disconnects, I think, is uh, become inevitable. Before we started recording, uh, you you made note of Barry Weiss, uh, uh, formerly of the of the New York Times, stating that Bill De Blasio has done, has made a more compelling case for school choice with his actions than Milton Friedman did in his decades of advocacy for uh, educational freedom. Uh, what is what does she mean by that? And and unpack that just a little bit. That's that's kind of brilliant. I'm Barry's a friend, so I'm you know biased, but but that is a hell of an observation. Um, look, but it, what I think it means is that just a a level of frustration has crept in among public school parents, particularly in places like New York City, 
that have just been, um, wow, how can I say this charitably? They, they just don't seem like they've got their act together. I mean, teachers and parents all summer long have, when you ask them, well, what's, what's, what's going on this fall? They just didn't know. And, and as recently as last week, um, and this week even, there are still thousands of teachers uh, short. Um, you know, it, it, it just, it, you know, so, some are going to do blended, some are going to do in person. There's been uh, problems with the unions. It just creates this massive uncertainty that, that it's almost inconceivable that even if there is daily schooling, that it's going to be effective or coherent. So a lot of parents who might not have considered themselves to be choice people, to Barry's point, suddenly might think, wait a minute, there's got to be a better way than this because this is just chaos. Uh, so her, you know, her, she was being humorous, but it's, it's, it's not a bad point. Uh, I think on the one hand, I'm a little bit skeptical, Caleb, about a lot of the nattering on we're hearing about the, quote, new normal. Uh, I think most American parents, regardless of where they are, would very much prefer their kids to be in school five days a week, you know, six to eight hours a day, the the normal rhythms of schooling. So when I listen or hear these data points about how we're going to become a nation of homeschoolers right now, or, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little bit skeptical. But having said that, the longer this goes on, uh, the more likely I think some parents are to just throw their hands up in the air and just say, what else is out there? Because this can't go on. Well, to your point uh, about nice white parents and uh, people who uh, suddenly are, are suddenly find themselves in a, in a very different place uh, with respect to education, uh, my biggest concern is that the new homeschoolers will not be trying to play by the same rules as old school homeschoolers. That is, the, the people who've been doing it all along. It seems like there's at least some opportunity for a little bit of uh, judgment going both ways. Yeah, I, I'm not sure what you mean by that. Unpack that for me. Well, I, the homeschooling community, uh, they, they don't agree on a lot politically. Sure. Uh, with the exception of you, the state better leave homeschoolers alone. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, you know, I, I think what you're seeing now are the rise of these so-called pandemic pods. And, and also, before, before I even go down that road, I, I also wonder to what degree people who say they are homeschooling really mean they are homeschooling. I've, I've had encounters with parents several times in the last couple of weeks that parents say, oh, no, we're homeschooling this year. I say, wait a minute, you're like, you with, withdrawn your child? And, and you push on it. It means, no, they're, they're following the district curriculum and lessons, but they're doing it at home. In other words, they're choosing the option for full-time remote learning as opposed to blended, as opposed to in-person, and calling it homeschooling. So uh, I think you have to interrogate the data to find out how much of this is true homeschooling, how much of this is going to last. Um, but yeah, I mean, you, to your very good point, you know, homeschooling, and look, I'm an unabashed, um, enthusiastic supporter of homeschooling. I think it's, you know, it's, it's uh, terrific when parents are that engaged and motivated. Um, but you know, it's it's it will be interesting to see what form this takes. I I, I just noted that I don't think that um, you know we're going to turn into a nation of homeschoolers. But on the other hand, if folks have decided, hey, look, I can work from home. That's what I've learned during the pandemic. My kids enjoy being uh, being home uh, more often than not. Um, Mike McShane of EdChoice has uh, done some interesting work about the rise of so-called, um, um, what is his phrase, blended homeschooling, I think, or, or um, part-time homeschoolers. So I think that, you know, everything seems to be on the table. 
without question, um, more Americans will probably take advantage of these opportunities that may persist post-COVID. Uh, but that's not the same thing as, you know, we're going to see a, you know, four, five, six-time uh, uh, multiple increase in the number of people who are doing it full-time. At the end of the day, uh, schooling, we don't like to talk about it this way. It serves a function beside education. Um, you know, the kids need a place to go while mom and dad go to work. Um, if, 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 you know, if folks are flexible and they can work from home and it works for them, then let a thousand flowers bloom. Um, but back to my earlier point, I still suspect that if, if, if somebody threw a switch, if there were a cure for COVID tomorrow, um, you would see the vast majority of Americans racing back to their schools, their, their, their schools from, from pre-March 2020, you know, whether those were district schools, charters, private parochial, et cetera. You know, it's, 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 it's common to deride the so-called cultural habit of schooling. I mean, one of the, the, the bromides we toss around in this work is, oh, schooling hasn't changed in 100 years. Well, well, that's not a flaw. That's a feature. You know, when things persist like that, it's generally because they serve a function and we like them. Robert Pondicio is author of the book, How the Other Half Learns. We spoke earlier this month. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast anywhere you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.